now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is Francisco Toro. I just wrote about the Brazilian election on October 30th, which people around the world expected to lead to a real problem on the streets because the incumbent president, Jair Bolsonaro, had more or less announced that he would follow in Trump's footsteps and contest the election if he didn't win it. So he didn't think there was any fair way he could lose. Brazil has been bracing for impact for almost a year because everyone had seen this coming. And yet, when the election results were announced right after the vote, within three hours, congratulations started coming in from all around the world, from everyone from Biden to Putin to Maduro in Venezuela and Erdogan in Turkey. And Brazilian institutions were ready. Congress accepted the results. Everybody accepted the results. And Bolsonaro just froze. He didn't do anything. He realized that his allies had won their state governor's elections, even though he had lost, and they would not join him in contesting the election. He also realized that the future for him could look like a jail cell if he contested the election. So he let it be known that his administration would be collaborating with the incoming Lula administration on a transition. It's great news for Brazil, though Lula still faces a very difficult time in office when he takes over on January 1st. Francisco Toro's piece called Why Bolsonaro is Going Quietly was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Rene Di Resta. Rene is the research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory. And we had a really deep conversation about how we should think about the way in which the internet has changed our politics and what aspects of the supposed threat of the internet and social media we should actually take seriously. Where is the wheat and where is the chaff in the concerning ways in which digital technology has transformed our politics. We also talked about another aspect of Renee's work, which is slightly different, and that is that she took an important role in fighting back against some ill-considered policies in San Francisco concerning education and crime and other topics. She has a really interesting account of how a group of people came together to fight for common sense solutions to real problems and what lessons others might take from that who want to rescue their own institutions from ideological takeover. Renee Di Resta, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Listen, I want you to figure out something very basic for me, which is that as recently as six or seven years ago, when I was teaching this class called Democracy in the Digital Age at Harvard, my role was sort of to talk my students out of their unfounded optimism. You know, they came in just thinking, the internet is going to make everything better and it's going to make the world richer and it's going to make the Middle East democratic and it's going to have all of these amazing things. And because I see it as my task as a teacher to make sure people look at both sides of the argument, I was saying, hey, here are some of the things to worry about. A bit of a conversation has just made a complete 180-degree U-turn and now all of the conversation about the internet is, here's why it's going to destroy democracy and help autocrats all over the world and why we need to censor online and why misinformation, disinformation is dangerous. So what do you think the potential of internet for our politics is and where do you think the real dangers lie? So I think 
one of the interesting dynamics about the internet as it's evolved in the age of social media. So a lot of that optimism was pretty early on, you know, the internet as the blogosphere and that proliferation of voices that came about as a result of, you know, the elimination of gatekeepers and the ability to publish content. I think one of the things that really changed, there was the period where we move into social networks and the dynamic of content being curated for you, for you being kind of pigeonholed into a particular type of person. We see these networks being assembled in the early 2010s as platforms begin to try to expand your social graph to try to connect you to people who are just like you, independent of geography. And what happens there is really interesting because, again, there are some really fantastic things that come about. People with rare diseases find each other. People who are in a particular circumstance that they feel they can't discuss with people they know in real life find each other. But what you also start to see is recommendation engines that don't really have an understanding of what they are recommending, connecting all sorts of other communities as well, including those that we might consider a little bit more toxic, like the highly conspiratorial communities. And what you start to see is people becoming really deeply engaged in what comes to be a very kind of highly factional way of engaging on the internet. So you start to see in the 2015 presidential campaign in the US, people putting kind of like emojis in bio, or you know, you see the Pepe the Frog kind of community really come about as a very strong community in favor of then-candidate Trump. That has really kind of continued over the following five or six years. You start to see all of these different types of people with a particular factional politics. And I don't mean factional in a pejorative, I just mean like that is their identity. And the norms that get established is the norm of we use this platform to fight. We use Facebook as a platform, again, to argue, to kind of insulate ourselves in particular communities and then go and like wage war against other communities. You see this on Reddit. Some of the earliest dynamics on Reddit are particular subs kind of going and attacking other subs. And so this dynamic of the internet as a way for one kind of factional community to fight with another factional community, that becomes kind of the normal expression of politics in the online space. So I think that dynamic is really interesting in that it doesn't necessarily fully translate offline, but what we are seeing now is areas in which it does manifest offline. So you'll see, again, kind of a particular factional alignment. During COVID, this became really prominent, where then there'll be an offline protest or you know people will show up to a school board meeting or they'll, or they'll show up to a local city council meeting because they heard something on the internet, they read something on the internet. And so you start to see these things kind of hop into the real world. I remember an article I read quoting Devin Nunes back in like 2015, where he made some comment about how it used to be very small numbers of conspiracy theorists calling his office, but now it had really jumped. He said, you know, it had kind of flipped almost 90% rather than 10%, 90% are calling his office with these insane theories that they've read on the internet demanding to know, you know, what he's going to do about them. And this is Devin Nunes, right? This is not a democratic politician expressing that sentiment. So even back in 2015, we start to see this shift in which highly active communities, highly active people begin to get their information in this way and to use it to take action or to, to galvanize people to action. I think that's really the, the fundamental difference in what the internet has done domestically in the US, but we see it in other countries as well. And so that phenomenon of assembling networks of people who then really engage in the behaviors of networked activism, which again, the internet is fantastic for, have really come to kind of dominate the experience of many people's uh, experience of politics on the internet. That's really interesting. I've been thinking through a similar mechanism in the context of identity, right? If you're in a group of 100 kids, let's say, in the class of some high school, or in many European countries, it'd be about 30 kids who are part of a section of an American class that really spends most of their lessons together. 
you know, you can have two or three different identities. Perhaps you can have nine or 10 different identities of the jocks and the athletes and the this and the that, right? But there's just an inherent limit on how you define yourself if you want to have a few friends, right? And so that actually imposed some form of order on how people self-defined. Once you have social media and the ability to self-assemble, the ability to find out of millions of users the 100 or 200 people who most agree with you, you don't need to have an identity that 5 or 10% of people might join. It's enough to have an identity that 0.1% of people might join. And I guess what you're saying is that same phenomenon is going on in politics and is able to activate these different kinds of conspiracy groups, these different kinds of people who are fanatical about some kind of political issue. So does that just explode the ability of inherited political institutions to represent the people, right? If you have two political parties, if you have six or seven political parties even, they can represent some of the major groupings in society if there's only six or seven major groupings. The ones you have, you know, a thousand really passionate groupings, does that just make it impossible for our institutions to channel them into a coherent politics? I think that's a really interesting question. I think my experience is so U.S. focused, just as a person on the internet watching this play out. I know that in European countries, there is that much more, you know, party alignment and party coalition building and parliamentary systems in which that need to shoehorn your identity into one particular political identity is not quite the way it manifests here, where you have to decide if you are one of these two major parties. Otherwise, you know, your vote really won't count. And so you're one of these two major parties and maybe you feel aligned with one party on one side and another party on another issue. You choose to participate in the conversational space around the issues. You know, I do this myself just in my own experience as someone who considers themselves center left, but who does, you know, find myself aligned with some of the center right policies on education. And so that question of how do you shoehorn your identity? How do you participate in an activist community that is read as uniquely partisan in one direction or another on social media? I think it is a challenge. I mean, I would like to think that one way that we could do this would actually be to see that people are more complex than the one label that they're often reduced down to. And I do think that there are people who operate in this interesting space in the center on social media where you do see them sort of split off and align on one party versus another. What is interesting about that, though, is oftentimes they will then be kind of attacked by the highly centralized, deeply factional much more kind of politically aligned communities on one side or another. So there is no highly activist centrist brigade, if you will, whereas you do see much more uh, activity and galvanization and activism on more of the edges where they're kind of uniformly aligned. And so there's a natural alliance there where people in tribe A will go and fight for a target if they're being attacked by tribe B because they see it as attacking a member of their community as opposed to this more amorphous identity where you don't have that natural, obvious ally if you say something that, you know, <laughs> that the internet gets mad about. So what kind of possible responses are there to this problem, right? If you have a theory of a case where it's sort of, quote-unquote, misinformation is leading people astray, then it might feel like educating people or censoring misinformation is going to be the solution. If what you're saying is fundamentally what's going on here is that the structure of the internet and of social media just makes people self-assemble in these small but very, very passionate groups. It feels like we would need a much, much more structural fix 
for our institutions to be able to cope with that. What is the implication of that for how we do politics? So first of all, I don't think that misinformation is really a particularly useful framing of the dynamics of the problem today. And so I'll say that over the last seven years, looking at how this happened, how this has evolved, I should say, into this very factional activism, most of the things that really rile people up are not demonstrably falsifiable, right? It's not a thing where you're saying this fact about the world is untrue and you need to be corrected on that thing. When there are these nice, neat moments like that, you can throw up a label, you can put up a fact check, people might not believe it. You know, There's this fundamental problem of if you're in tribe A, you distrust the media of tribe B and vice versa. And so the fact check, even the attempt to correct the misinformation when it is misinformation is read with a particular kind of, again, partisan valence. Is this coming from somebody in my tribe or is this more manipulation from the bad guys? But I think one of the more useful frameworks for what is happening today is actually rumors, right? It's actually more of a, a matter of people who are spreading information, even unverifiable information, things that maybe can never be verified or falsified even, who they're kind of spreading it amongst themselves as like an alternative to the defined narrative, right? A, a media defined narrative. And this is how we've always thought about rumors and social science, that work of just communities of people who really care about an issue, really, really care, really impacts them in some way. They're very, very interested in it. It has kind of very high salience. They spread it amongst themselves to inform their friends and neighbors. Again, you know, there is like that kind of altruistic motivation there. And it happens increasingly right now I think social media, the design is such that the design amplifies the worst tendencies of very established old human phenomenon, right? Old human nature. There, there were rumors and you know, before the printing press, this is not a, a new thing. But it's the way in which the design of the system, the design of the communication system impacts the way that that information spreads. And that's where you do start to see things like people being recommended into groups. So the platforms help find their identity for them based on statistical similarity to other users. The way once the network is assembled, once people are put into these groups or these follower relationships, the way that information is curated so that when one person sees it and hits that share button, because again, it's a rumor, they're interested, they want to help, you know, they want to, to spread it to the rest of their community. Facts are not really, you know, it's not, it's not part of the, the process here. It's like identity, engagement. This is a thing that I am angry about that you should be angry about too. This is a thing that I am interested in that you should want to know more about as well. That act of sharing, it traverses a particular network. And so as we have assembled people into these communities. That's where the kind of design and structure is today. Again, this is like rewarmed media theory from the 1960s. You know, <laughs> the argument that the structure of the system perpetuates how the information is going to spread. There were theories that mass broadcasts, like television, was going to stop rumors because people would get information sooner. And instead, that that's not, of course, how it actually wound up playing out. And so, social media is just a different type of trajectory where the audience has real power as participants. And that's something that is like fundamentally different than all the prior media environments, where not only can you share the rumor, but millions of people can see in aggregate the sharing of that rumor. And so that's where the phenomenon of like velocity and virality have really fundamentally changed this very, very old thing. So then the question is, what do you do about that? And that's where I think this phenomenon of what rumor is resonating within which community at which time is something that we actually can look at. This is something that that social scientists, quantitative social scientists, and people who study narratives on the internet, you know, can answer that question. This claim about COVID is really getting traction within the Black community. This claim about COVID is really getting traction in the wellness community. Those claims are not the same claims. We don't see 
you know, the wellness community sharing the claims that the Black community finds impactful because they're much more interested in, you know, the toxicity of an ingredient as opposed to the social dynamics of power with regard to who vaccines are tested on historically and that sort of thing. And so that means that the responses have to also be much more tailored, much more targeted. And that's the thing. It's actually that last mile problem, if you will, of who does the response? How do the people who find the rumor compelling receive the information about it as it continues to unfold, as the truth is discovered? That's kind of where the real sort of shortfall is right now. We can do the detection. We can do the analysis. We can say how this works. But nobody has got that last mile. Here's the counter speech that addresses the rumor because it's not always misinformation and you can't just take it down. I want to return to the topic of misinformation, but help me clarify something. So on the one hand, you're saying that 1960s media theory, this is structural, right? The structural architecture of Twitter and Facebook and so on determines the way in which these rumors spread and so on. On the other hand, it sounds like when you're talking about the remedy, you're talking sort of about hand-to-hand combat within those structures, right? You're talking about how do you, you know, the structure is going to be pre-given, some of this information is going to spread, and you just need I take it credible messengers to rebut claims that are false in ways that are dangerous or that are unfounded. How do those two match on? If a structure determines how these messages spread, don't we need a structural fix in order to contain the danger? I think the answer is yes. Again, there's like the policy education and design, right? You've got your sort of three levers. Policy can be within a platform, right? Platform policy actually determines what propagates. Platform policy sets those guardrails around what can and does spread within topical confines. I'll give a specific example here to get out of the realm of theory. If you open up Twitter, there's that thing on the right-hand side and it's trends, right? And they're personalized for you. And what you'll see is things where there's a very, very small number of participants in the trend, actually. It's maybe just a couple hundred, small number of thousands of of tweets. Not a very massive thing, but it's a nudge. It says you are going to be interested in this topic. It's bait, you know, (laughs) go click into this thing that you have engaged with before that you are probably going to be interested in. And then you will see all of the other people's tweets about it. And then you can engage. And in the act of engagement, you are perpetuating that trend. You are making that trend continue to take off. You're ensuring that people who follow you see your engagement with that trend. So people who follow you presumably are more likely to be influenced by you. So here's your opinion on that trend. Again, you're calling attention to it. And so it's not just a passive nudge where the Twitter is saying, here is what is trending in the world. And this is entirely independent of our design structures and nudges. In fact, it is perpetuating that phenomenon in how it pushes it to particular types of people. So I think that question, when we think about design, there's some things like the structure of the networks, meaning here is how we assemble people into groups. That has actually changed quite a lot since 2017. I remember uh, early on, I was paying attention to the anti-vaccine movement. I was a new mom. I was really interested in what people were saying about this on Facebook. I was kind of horrified by it, to be totally candid. And I started following some anti-vaccine groups. And then my recommendations from Facebook began to show me Pizzagate and then QAnon, right? And so I had never typed in Pizzagate. I had never typed in QAnon, but through the power of collaborative filtering, it understood that if you are statistically, like if you are an active participant in a conspiracy theory community that fundamentally foundationally distrusts the government, you are probably kind of similar to these other people who maybe have a different flavor of the conspiracy, but also have that foundational distrust. So maybe you should go over here and take a look at this group. And the purpose for the platform 
the recommendation engine didn't understand what it was doing. It was not a conscious effort. You know, it, it didn't want to have to determine what was good and what was bad. So instead, it just said, well, here's an active community. You have some similarities. You should go join that active community. Let's give you this nudge. And that is how a lot of these networks were assembled in the early, you know, kind of mid-2010s. And so that that question now, as that is no longer the case, there are many people who feel that any change to the design, right, any change to the algorithm, the network, how somebody is nudged or prompted is a viewpoint-based censorship. And so what we're starting to see is arguments around censorship, which historically have been tied to viewpoints, are instead being applied to just basic phenomena of design. What is amplified and what is not? What is a quote-unquote neutral or quote-unquote fair ranking system when there is no such thing because the internet is curating, the platforms are curating what you see. And so there is inherently a weighting and a value judgment there. I would argue that we could experiment with that far more than we have. And that is, in fact, you know, this, this question of how do you use design, that question of design and policy and the intersection there and how that shapes how people behave, I think is really the frontier as we think about, is there a response at scale or a more systemic response as opposed to, let's try to counter message to community A in this moment. So there's time horizons. Right now, these are the networks, these are the communities that targeted response and education is probably the best thing we have. But looking forward, what does an optimal system design look like? I think that's really where the interesting research should be at this point. My impression was that the bulk of the debate is about viewpoint censorship, right? That most of you know, what really gets people is how can person X be saying thing Y on these platforms? They need to be thrown off. And then, of course, there's why on earth did person, you know, A, get booted off for saying harmless thing B, this is an outrage. And of course, part of the dynamic is that people see the misjudgments on their own side much more vividly than the misjudgment on the other side. So the people who are unfairly kicked off. And so therefore, one of the real dangers to me of a censorship system is that both sides of a political spectrum become deeply convinced, and in a way, reasonably become deeply convinced that they're being deeply discriminated against. My question here is, do you think that people are going to be as skeptical about structural changes as they are about this continual attempt by Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms to moderate, quote-unquote, speech by making people delete their tweets or suspending their accounts or even terminating them? And what are the kind of structural reforms that the social media platforms should be experimenting with, the ones that you think might actually help to make for healthier platforms? There will always be complaints, right? Anytime a, a powerful platform does something that changes a particular individual or community's perception of their distribution. You may remember some of the earliest allegations that the platforms were behaving unfairly came about when large numbers of automated accounts were taken down. We used to kind of jokingly refer to this as like the bot raptures, right? So even though people wanted fewer bots, this is funny enough, the entire conversation with the Elon Musk Twitter takeover right now, people wanted fewer bots, but when they saw their follower counts decrease, then there was a sense that something egregious had happened, particularly since a lot of the more automated accounts or a lot of the accounts that were kind of 
culled in these bot raptures in the 2017-2018 timeframe did seem to be disproportionately following conservative accounts. That is the reality of the dynamic there. I think one way that platforms can address concerns about this is through a little bit more transparency around what came down and why, as opposed to you just wake up and you've lost you know, 20,000 followers, because that moment creates an opportunity for powerful influencers to frame that reduction of automated or spam accounts as inherently anti conservative as opposed to a kind of massive call across the platform in which politicians in India lost many tens of thousands of followers as well. So I think the the legitimacy question is what you're really getting at here though, right? Which is who has the moral authority <laughs> to decide how the system is run. And that is a very complicated question because of course there's ref working by powerful people on all sides of the political spectrum and not limited to the United States either. We see that ref working appearing in many, many, many different countries, including authoritarians who rely on intimidation campaigns, propaganda bots and that sort of thing, propaganda trolls and accounts to create particular perceptions of their popularity even or popularity for their policies. Even though this is a very heated debate in the United States, these phenomena are happening globally, and that's one of the real challenges for the platforms. There's at least three different questions, right? One is about who should be allowed to make the rules that govern big public platforms like Twitter and Facebook. And one obvious answer might be, well, the private companies, the companies should be able to do whatever they want. But once those platforms do have a systemic importance for being able to engage in political debate in this country or in other countries, I think there is also a plausible argument that there should be some regulation on the kind of censorship, for example, that these platforms should be allowed to do. And in particular, there should be consequences if they do engage in such extensive censorship that they essentially become publishers. Then there's a question as to why they should be exempt from the normal kinds of constraints that publishers face, including the ability to be sued for liable and so on, right? Then the second kind of question is, all right, once we figured out who should be able to make those decisions, what kind of decisions should they be able to make? And what kind of decisions are the right decisions to make, right? Is it just a question of making structural adjustments so that Twitter isn't built to be an adversity and hating each other platform? Or should they be able to sense of viewpoints which may be helped by the majority of the American population. How far should they be able to go to suppress debate, for example, about the origin of COVID or other kind of questions, right? And then the third question is, all right, but what about the transparency? Even if we said some, whatever committee, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley should be able to rule on what happens in Facebook and Twitter. Even if we say they should have carte blanche to censor people even on arbitrary grounds, even on they're just not the kinds of people we want to have our, on our platform, should they have to inform users about what happens? And, you know, I think certainly on that, it's become obvious how negative the consequences are when people are driven into this kind of paranoia. Now, some people may affect the paranoia for political gain, right? It, it may say, look, I'm being censored because I've lost the follower accounts and are perfectly aware of the fact that these were just bots that have disappeared. But some of it, I think, drives even very thoughtful and genuine people to think, hang on a second, if there's some form of shadow banning, as some people claim, and a lot of social media platforms claim that it doesn't really exist, but it's sort of unclear. And, you know, suddenly for a week or two, my tweets don't do very well. You know, probably that's a coincidence of timing, or I just haven't had very good tweets or sequencing thing where it just so happens that a few tweets in a row didn't perform that well. 
but it becomes very tempting to, for people to think, hang on a second, have I somehow offended some engineer at Twitter headquarters and they just shadow banned me, right? So yeah, so I think there's these three really difficult dimensions of who gets to decide what kind of decisions should they take and how much transparency do they owe the public about the nature of those decisions. I hope that I didn't come across as not <laughs> thinking that this was a very complicated problem. No, no, not at all. So there's a couple things here. First, there's the question of transparency. So for a very long time, there has been this argument, as you noted, people are more attuned to takedowns on their own side, you know, the kind of egregious censorship, the affront of their person coming down. Yet one thing you do notice when you look at the stats on how many millions of accounts come down, everybody feels this same sense of agreement that you're describing. So the way that we would want to be able to assess that would actually be able to have transparency in the takedown data so that researchers could look at these questions. There was a couple of audits within Facebook. There was a civil rights audit and there was an anti-conservative bias audit. And these things were happening kind of concurrently. I don't remember the final outputs, to be totally honest. It was a few years back, but I do recall the anti-conservative bias investigators really didn't find very much. There was no smoking gun there. And this was the same back in 2016, 2015, maybe. There was what we called a trending topic skate on Facebook, where there was an allegation where it was showing things that were going viral on the platform. And there were human editors in the loop who were trying to take down the stuff that was kind of demonstrably false. And there were allegations made that too much of what was taken down, a whistleblower, I think, um, somebody who claimed to be a whistleblower, said that conservative viewpoints were being censored, were being edited. And as it turned out, you know, there were more of these kind of spammy domains that were targeting conservative individuals with what we called at the time, very quaintly, fake news. And the fake news debacle around trending topics, the, the solution, so Glenn Beck and a bunch of other people went to Facebook, had this meeting, decided that, you know, their hearts were in the right place, that there probably wasn't much of a there there. This was, again, the quaint old days of uh, 2015 timeframe. And what winds up happening is Facebook eliminates the human oversight. They take the human editors off the trending topics feature. And all of a sudden, trending topics is just promoting all kinds of, you know, I remember getting in the science section, like a Wiccan blog about how, you know, <laughs> like Mercury was in retrograde and something, something tides, you know. And then there were the other ones that were things like Megyn Kelly fired by Fox News was one of them. Pope endorses Donald Trump. This was as the, as the campaign was heating up. And so, Facebook ultimately wound up killing that feature because there was no way for them to curate in a way that they were surfacing reliable information. They didn't want to wade into this debacle of, is some liberal in Silicon Valley putting their thumb on the scale and silencing conservative speech? They also didn't necessarily want their platform to just be this vector for constant viral nonsense. And so they ultimately killed the feature. So this is the, you know, again, interestingly, when something is trending, you see it, you respond to it, you react to it, and you inadvertently potentially perpetuate the trend. That kind of investigation, though, that kind of work that Facebook does internally is using data that only Facebook has. So when we make arguments for transparency, if you want to actually assess the extent to which a particular community may in fact be disproportionately silenced by a policy or by a design choice, then there has to be some way for somebody outside of the platform as well to participate in that auditing process, if you will. And so you mentioned regulation. And that aspect of policy, one of the bills that I was most excited about last year was the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, or I guess that was earlier this year, but last legislative season. The Platform Accountability and Transparency Act just argues that we can't answer these questions without access to data. And that's the sort of thing where there is 
you know, support for that idea, even from people like on the right, like Ted Cruz and Marsha Blackburn, uh, and also on the left, like Senator Blumenthal, where you see this bipartisan recognition that in order to actually assess what is happening, we should create systems for that research to be done. The problem, though, is that the other thing that you kind of alluded to is regulation to punish the platforms. And that is much more likely to get picked up in the media. That is much more likely to become a topic of conversation. That is much more likely to get passed at some state house level, as we've seen in Texas. I think the Supreme Court said yesterday they were going to evaluate the Texas uh, anti-censorship social media laws it's, as it's kind of framed. And so there is this dynamic where we, we actually just don't really have answers here. And, and I think that people would like them to exist. They'd like to kind of neatly shoehorn this into censorship versus not censorship, but it's not really that simple. And I think we have to be advocating much more for transparency if we want to actually assess, you know, the realistic, the extent to which this is a problem. For any given user, though, there is one one other thing I'll just flag. There is now the Facebook Oversight Board, which I think provides an interesting model by which you can appeal a decision that was made about your account. And I think that that model of restitution, you know, an opportunity to plead your case, to have an outside body, outside, you know, people who are not within the platforms operating under certain incentive structures, take a look at it. That is, I think, a a useful model. But as you noted earlier, the question is, how do you scale that? Who funds it? Who sits on the jury? And, you know, there is no phase in this process. Do we have a sense where we're like, yes, this non-biased person has the moral authority to evaluate these questions. And that's why we've had seven years now of just kind of roiling anger about this with no meaningful regulation and no meaningful fact-finding that has come out of any of it. So very briefly, what are the three key features of a regulation that we should pass? So I guess transparency, so we can actually assess and recognize if some political or other community is being targeted in an unfair way. What else? User appeals, I think, is a key part of you know framework for that has to be established. How do we think about that oversight board model as applied more broadly? And then the last thing, which we haven't really talked about, but just been on my mind lately, is questions like, can the FTC weigh in on things that are deemed to be consumer harms? And is there a way to use consumer harms or consumer protection in certain ways, like influencers becoming paid but undisclosed political mouthpieces, things where we have regulation in other areas around transparency from a different standpoint? Who is behind this message? Who is paying for this message? That, I think, is an area where as we have moved towards this model of influencers really having a you know millions of followers profound impact potentially on politics and shaping opinions i do think the ftc coming up with more modernized rules for thinking about enforcement of paid political activities is really critical so since you mentioned influencers i know that that's what you're working on uh, in the context of a book as well what is an influencer and why should we worry about influencers other than, you know, what they might be trying to get our teenage children to do or something like that? I don't know that I would say it as worry. I, I'm not necessarily, I'm not taking like a normative anti-influencer stance here. I'm trying to be descriptive. Here is what has happened. Here is this novel figure. Here is how they have used this environment. A lot of the work on influencers comes out of marketing. Even as recently as 2019, most of the writing on influencers has stayed in the context of marketing. It's a person, the marketing terms are reach, resonance, and relevance. They speak to, again, this factional model as people assemble into these kind of very distinct communities. Influencers have a high resonance within a particular community. So not necessarily the same thing as the kind of celebrity model in the past where a person is famous for doing a thing and they have nationwide or international name recognition. More people who are persuasive within a particular 
community, a particular defined niche. So let's say as an example, because I love to think about an example, like my favorite supposedly, possibly, potentially talking dog bunny, one of these new pets that you see a lot of on Instagram and TikTok that are able to talk through the use of buttons, which were originally designed for people who are autistic or who are speech impaired for some reason. And they're able to have some kind of basic communication with the human owners by using these buttons and there's questions about what that means. One of the biggest of them is a dog called Bunny. And, you know, her owner has a lot of followers and has people who obviously think this person knows a lot about how to raise a dog well and have a healthy dog. And so when they advertise dog food, I assume that she would have those three characteristics, right? She would be an appealing influencer, not perhaps when talking about fashion choices or not when talking about travel, but when talking about things related to pets and dog food, for example. Exactly. And that's where that relevance comes in and resonance within a community. And one thing that's interesting about influencers is there's a trust and an authenticity. They're seen as largely uncoopted by the sort of trappings of celebrity, the big businesses. And it's not like a famous celebrity can promote a Coke, but this small influencer talking to their community about why this water is, you know, is a, is a good choice and something that they're drinking every day and really feeling up, feeling energized about. A lot of these folks start off just having those conversations very casually. And then ultimately then the kind of sponsorships roll in. So there's a financial motivation. There's also a clout motivation. You know, the more influence you amass, the more potential sponsorships you might have, the more, if you're on something like YouTube, the more kind of views on your videos, which translates into this kind of advertising revenue share. So there's a lot of different ways in which it is a business as well as a passion. And so there's that kind of dual phenomenon there. But one thing that's very interesting is that particularly there's like almost a reallocation of trust to a lot of these folks. Audiences feel that they're really speaking to them. You see these fandoms arise around this relationship that people have around influencers. And it is very interesting, I think, to see the extent to which once you have that trusted relationship, you don't necessarily have to stay in your lane with the dog food. You can, in fact, offer your opinion on many other things. And because we're friends and we talk and we like each other, I might be perhaps more likely to consider your opinion on this thing worthwhile, even if it's your opinion on this political candidate. And that's where, again, you do see these efforts by candidates to reach people who speak to particular communities that they want to connect with. So the influencer does have, once it has kind of amassed that influence in one area, one of the questions is to what extent does that translate into other areas? And how do we think about the role of these folks in things like politics and policy? And so that's where some of my current research is. And so one of the things that I believe we've seen is in some authoritarian regimes or semi-authoritarian regimes, you know, hundreds of influences of the most reach suddenly read practically verbatim identical messages of support for the government. And they all sort of did in their own voice, you know, they're very good at appearing authentic. But actually, when you looked at these back to back to back, it was, you know, 50, 100 people reading the same script. That obviously is concerning because it raises the prospect of public discourse being steered by the government, being steered with resources, taxpayer resources, or perhaps resources from bribes that should not be expended to help somebody stay in office. What are the policy implications of this? Do we need regulation about this? Do we need a need to disclose any form of paid political messaging on these platforms? What is the relevant response? 
So first, I would say there's always there's policy and then there's education. On the former front, yes, this is kind of what I was alluding to with relevant bureaucracies in the U.S., whether that's the FEC or the FTC, this question about disclosures and how should the people who take money for these purposes communicate that that has happened. So I think that that's pretty basic, actually. <laughs> I feel that that's very foundational. I don't know how controversial that opinion is. But the other point is, in fact, I think education, which is why I'm doing this book project, which is really, can I kind of connect the dots to this figure and this role that it plays in our current discourse, kind of connect it back to ways in which it's manifested historically? There have been influencers. I've been spending a lot of time reading these kind of primary sources from the 1930s that are what is to be done about Father Coughlin, right? And Father Coughlin was a priest, you know, really kind of moved into uh, fascist radio broadcasts and had, I think it was 30 million listeners on his radio programs. This is an extraordinary reach. And at a time when the population of the United States was much smaller than it is today. Right. So this is an incredibly influential figure with a extremely wide reach. There's a lot of analysis of like his tone of voice, the way he speaks, you know, the mechanism by which he puts information out, the mechanism by which he's persuasive. And something we haven't really talked about is this idea, as you note, with governments of propaganda, right? What is the influencer's role in a propaganda ecosystem today? That is something that I'm absolutely fascinated by. And so I've been going back to these kind of prior figures. Coughlin is the one that I find the most kind of interesting, in part because there's entire curriculums for students, for high schools, designed around how to understand Father Coughlin's rhetoric. And it's really fascinating. They actually kind of break it down and they're saying, here's the rhetorical tactic used here. Here's the technique used here. Here's what you have to understand about this. They're not trying to fact check anything in his commentary. They're simply saying, here's how it works. Here's why you find it emotionally resonant. It's almost like, again, much more of like a structural analysis of the message. That sounds like an instruction manual for those students to go and copy his success. <laughs> I think today, yes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating to me that at one point in American history, there was this entire curriculum. It extends all the way through. You know, there are these epics in history, of course. There's the 1930s. They're talking about radio. But you see this pop up again in the context of the Cold War, right? This question of how do you recognize Soviet propaganda? What are the tells? They're not trying to argue against the Soviet arguments. They're breaking down, here's how it works, and here's how you should think about it. Here's why it's persuasive, and these are the forms that it takes. And I maybe naively, but I was very interested in this as a as a model after the Internet Research Agency activities, you know, here is how the Russians used memes. It got so partisan. I think it was really read very much as if you acknowledged that there was Russian interference, but that it was separate from quote unquote Russia gate or the collusion thing. It was a real missed opportunity, I think, to say this is how online propaganda works today. It is not this kind of Chomskyite top-down 1980s, the government colluding to manufacture consent through mass media. There's this new form that's appeared that I think is really interesting. And again, you know, here is how it is done. Here is how you might recognize it. I think the the moral aspect is like, here is why it's not great. Here's why it's bad. But I do think there is that question of policy always kind of lags behind, is very slow, especially in the US, but education maybe can move a little faster. So on that time horizon differential, what do you do first? So since you mentioned education, let me transition to a related and yet very different topic, which is that you lived in San Francisco for a long time and you became quite active in challenging some of the political trends within the city. You refer to yourself as center-left. I assume you identify broadly with the Democratic Party. But you became worried about what progressives within San Francisco city government were doing 
uh, particularly on the topics of education and crime. Tell us a little bit about why those headline stories about San Francisco really should be concerning to people, both in terms of what's happening to the city and in terms of possibly a leading light of the mistakes that other cities might make if we follow that model. So one thing that was very interesting about that was how we felt about it locally versus how it was cast in the national media. And this created some interesting tensions. So I lived in SF for a decade, 2011 to 2021. It wasn't a theoretical for me, right? My house was broken into. My car was broken into. You know, my children learned to recognize needles at the playground when they were two. You know, and this was the sort of thing where I was like, I just kind of feel like we could do better. <laughs> you know, they're like, we can improve society somewhat meme. You know, I was like, that, that, that's where we are. And when the schools closed during the pandemic, again, there was a lot of real goodwill early on. And in March, you know, we were all like, great, close the schools. It's fantastic. But then we expected, I think the parent community expected like worksheets to come via email or even, you know, go pick them up. We were all homeschooling. Everybody was very, I think, tolerant of the circumstances for a very long time, actually, through the end of the summer. When it became the end of the summer and we began to realize that there was no plan to do anything differently that what had happened from March to May was going to be the normal for the entire next school year. That was when people really started galvanizing and saying, okay, things are really going off the rails here. At the same time, the board was very focused on things like renaming the schools. And you know, we were like, oh, we're renaming schools that we can't go into. That doesn't make any sense. And it wasn't right versus left. It was moderate versus progressive, which in San Francisco means more like far left, more DSA. There's a, a little bit of a different definition in a blue versus bluer kind of community as opposed to where the national spectrum is on that. And so parents did really galvanize. And it was very interesting because there was this galvanization that was happening nationwide as people were kind of calling for reopening and different communities had different things that they were very angry about. The San Francisco moderates were not anti-mask. They were very pro-vaccine. They were very much advocating for teachers to get vaccines first, you know, help them jump to the front of the line. Let's just keep this moving. Let's keep doing things. Can we fundraise for PPE? Can we fundraise for ventilation in the classrooms? all of these sorts of things. But it was very interesting because within San Francisco, the kind of far left, including the union, the teachers union, tried to frame this as like, this is the right wing manifestation of the reopener movement come to San Francisco. And that you know, it doesn't help, of course, that right wing media loves to talk about the San Francisco carnage is, of course, the theme that they always use, because there is real crime. There are real problems in that city and nobody has been held accountable for them. And we have a political machine that just fails up. You know, these people just fail into higher and higher offices because endorsements are made by the political machine. And so they are just kind of endorsing their friends into higher and higher roles. And so what you started to see was this pushback from parents who were saying, okay, enough is enough here. And it was read, though, as the right-wing cabal comes to San Francisco politics. And, you know, of course, that comes along with a, a bunch of smear campaigns and arguments that anybody, you are literally Tucker Carlson, you are saying the same thing that Tucker Carlson is saying. And, and then you find yourself in that awkward position of having to say, well, you know, unfortunately, yes, like people that we might find their politics unfavorable, just because they said the same thing doesn't mean that we should be living in these circumstances, the idea of criticism, of criticizing your party, your side, I think has to be, again, kind of hearkening back to the very start of our conversation. When you have these highly factional dynamics, then everything is cast as like your political identity as opposed to my political identity. And therefore, what you're advocating for, you know, I will kind of demonize it as an identity function as opposed to engaging with the substance of the argument, which was we should reopen schools because kids are not doing well. 
And making that a partisan thing, it was extraordinary to watch, you know? <laughs> yeah, this is what, drawing on an idea by Emily Yoffe, I've called one atheism, which is to say the sense that politics becomes so polarized that you want to say the opposite of whatever your opponent is saying. And even if it so happens that your opponent is saying something reasonable, you got to find a way of being 180 degree removed from it. And of course, one of the ironic things about that is that it gives your opponent complete control of what you believe. Exactly. Because it means that as soon as, you know, Tucker Carlson jumps onto some bandwagon, you suddenly have to change position and start saying the opposite of what he's saying. So you're actually outsourcing your own political positioning to the people you most abhor, which seems like a very bad idea. So I think you've outlined what the concerns were about education. It was partially that these schools were closed for not just the first months of a pandemic, but for a very, very long period of time. And secondly, that they seem to be prioritizing a sort of social justice agenda in an often very ill-considered manner. So, you know, I think one of the schools that was slated to be renamed, I forget what was ultimately renamed in San Francisco, was named after Abraham Lincoln. It never got renamed. They halted They halted the renaming. Oh, it was extraordinarily absurd. The people who were responsible for the committee were literally just like Googling. They were just trying to Google to find reasons to justify renaming. I think it was something like 27 schools. And nobody had any idea how any of this was going to be paid for. That was the other thing that was staggering about it. So we didn't have money for PPE. We didn't have money for ventilation. We didn't have money for education. But we were going to go on this goose chase of, uh, of renaming Lincoln High School. What about the crime aspect of this? Give us a little bit of a local context of why it is that your children by the age of two needed to be able to recognize needles from a playground for their own safety. There's a lot of deep empathy for the, the number of unhoused and addicted people who are on the streets of San Francisco. And I think the entire blue spectrum in San Francisco feels that empathy. There's some debates about what should be done about it. You know, there's there's actually a fair amount of support for uh, safe injection centers and things like this. Again, which, you know, the right, I think, would be horrified by, but is a perfectly within the realm of acceptable solutions to try. And you know, many of us have, have argued for that at a state level as well. But there's extraordinary amounts of money that are thrown at the problem. And yet, you know, really basic things like sharps boxes and playgrounds and things. You know, it's, it's amazing that you have to have them there. but you do start to see these phenomenon where people would post on the mom listserv about, oh, I might have to take my kid for a hepatitis shot, you know. And but that's that's kind of secondary, actually. The crime in San Francisco, that's not really the main driver. I think that there's the, that perception is really linked. And I want to just kind of unlink that. Most of the vehicular break-ins in San Francisco are organized crime rings that operate outside of the city, come into the city because there are a lot of tourists, break in and leave again. And so this has been known for a very, very, very long time. But the kind of impetus to do something about it, I remember in the campaign for DA when Chase Boudin was running, you know, there were arguments about maybe we should create a a system by which people who had their windows smashed could like apply for the city to cover the cost of the repair. And I was like, so we're just going to keep paying to repair people's windows, but we're not really <laughs> doing much with the root cause here, or putting band-aids on broken windows. What a surreal policy suggestion that is. There was a lot of finger pointing the DA to the police, the police back to the DA. Why aren't the police arresting more? Why isn't the DA charging anybody? And so that debate was happening. This, of course, again, was read into the larger national conversation, this question of anti-carceral prosecutors or decarceral prosecutors and how prominent people who were kind of aligned with that movement nationwide 
saw, you know, Chesa as being under attack again by this national machine. But what polling was showing was just that the people of San Francisco, I think there was some crazy stat that came out a couple of weeks ago that said something like 25 to 30 percent of people had been the victim of a car break-in or a home break-in, some other equally high percentage, an assault on the street. And so the arguments were always made like, well, the crime stats don't support the sentiment, ergo, it must be a vast propaganda operation by the right brainwashing the good people of San Francisco as if they're all sitting there reading right-wing media. And so there was this kind of surreal conversation about it where, again, that phenomenon you're describing where if somebody on the right is criticizing the crime wave in San Francisco and presenting this image of San Francisco carnage, that means that we should just kind of be happy with the status quo in the city, even as we have all had this experience very personally, the lived experience of being in San Francisco was one of being a victim of crime or knowing somebody who was a victim of crime. And so the idea that you've just been like brainwashed by what, you know, some right-wing pundit said on television was actually really insulting, I think. And so a lot of communities, again, got very galvanized around this and said, you know, enough is enough. And it is time to kind of send a message back to city leadership saying that these policies are not working and we cannot continue with them. I had left by the time of the chaser recall, but that was where the momentum really was around that. And so how did this counter movement, first in the school closings, where I believe you did play a role and then on the Justice Boudin recall happen? How did people managed to organize, even though the people in political power were pretty arrayed in defense of those individuals and institutions. And how did you message those campaigns in such a way that it made it harder for people to falsely claim, oh, you're just foot soldiers in this vast right-wing conspiracy? Well, first, it was a huge effort by a number of different organizations in the center, in the moderate center of the city. So I don't get any real credit for this. The focus had to be on competence. Is this policy working? No. What might a different policy look like and who might better execute on that policy? And so, you know, as much as the far left in the city tried to turn this into a referendum on the identity of the school board members as if this was just kind of like punishing a Black and Latina school board member, what was really happening was just arguments that the entire board would have been recalled if they could have been, but these three folks were eligible and it was really just on competence. You know, one of the things that, you know, sunshining for city records, for email records, trying to see like, was any work being done to reopen? Where were the emails between the school board members coming up with the plans? And they didn't exist. They didn't exist. That was the thing that was so staggering. (laughs) So that's when you start to see local media beginning to write the story of competence. And I think that there was really a just a focus on keeping it about, are these the best people to be running this school district at this time? And the voters overwhelmingly in the referendum voted the answer is no. And that was, uh, and that was where it went. So I think it was very much a focus on how might we have a school board that is, you know, not just a stepping stone to higher political office where the DCCC and the, and the folks in San Francisco who do the endorsements are doing it to try to position their people for a subsequent board of supervisors role or something that, you know, where the school board becomes the stepping stone to higher office. Is there a way to break that model and to argue for parent-centered, student-centered school board? And that, I think, was above all else what really motivated the parents to drive the momentum on this. The union advocated for the teachers. The school board had been endorsed by the union, they advocated for the teachers, and there was nobody advocating for the kids. And that was, I think, the gap that a lot of concerned parents decided to step in and fill. 
So what advice would you give to people who may be listening to this and saying, hey, my city has similar problems or some institution I'm a part of has been taken over by deeply ideological and not very competent people. How can I start to argue against this without ruining my good name, without being smeared as part of this right-wing conspiracy? Is there any kind of learning that you've taken from how this worked in San Francisco that people might seize to emulate your success? Well, the smear campaigns were, of course, part of it. When I talk about the kind of factional dynamics online today, it does make it very, very easy to smear people. You know, it is almost a cost of doing business for participation in the public sphere today. I think it's really terribly unfortunate that that's where the norms are, but that is where the norms are. What we tried to do was just create a positive message. You know, these are ways that we want to help children. Here are ways in which we are going to participate in helping children. Not counter smears, not wading into that to the greatest extent possible. But it is something where I think the recognition that you can impose significant costs on a person by smearing them and by making it impossible for them to speak up because of a risk of firing or that sort of dynamic. My sincere hope is that institutions and companies are more aware of, you know, this is a tactic that is widely used online by every facet of the factional spectrum at this point. And it is something that institutions should really take care to not kind of fall prey to. You know, there are occasionally times when something egregious has been uncovered or done and an institution has a responsibility to investigate at that point. But the idea that, you know, so-and-so is the fascist for advocating for, you know, a, uh, a competent government is, is not that. Yeah, and so many things would be a lot easier if institutions just stuck to a very simple maxim that when some smear is made or some accusation is made or people are characterized in a particular kind of way, the institutional response would be, first of all, to do nothing unless there's a very reasonable ground for that suspicion and secondly, if there is reasonable ground for suspicion, simply the announcement that they will investigate and come to a solution at the time when all the necessary information is available. And most of the time, that not only allows the institution to make sure it doesn't rush into an erroneous or an unfair decision, but also ensures that actually the world has moved on to you know the next thing that Twitter is outraged about. And the pressure to come to a particular kind of decision is much weaker at that point. Yeah, I agree. Renee De Resta, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, Please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.